Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Really thankful that this guest made the time. He's going to be joining us all the way from Belgium. So friends of the show will recognize his name because he was a back-to-back -back CIS champion and won a silver medal the next year, so lots of hardware when he was at Trinity Western. He's been with our national team for a long time, and he's been a pro player since 2013, so we're going to learn about his journey and all the great countries he's played with. Uh, joining us, Daniel Jansen Van Doren. Thanks for doing this, man. Thanks for having me. So let's cover the obvious one. Usually we like to set the set the tone with how you started playing volleyball and where you grew up and all that good stuff. But I just want to skip ahead to you qualified for the Olympics. So let's start there. Um, in talking to some other players, it's interesting to hear about how people arrived home and how much time you had to train. So when did your club in Belgium release you and when did you get to go home? And did you go home first or did you go to Gatineau? Yeah, I had to... I actually went home, uh, Langley's home for me, so I went uh, all the way out west for, I think, three days, four days for Christmas, and uh, yeah, I didn't really want to spend the, spend the Christmas out in Europe, so I just went home and then flew <laughs> back to Europe to uh, Gatineau, and then yeah, we trained for about 10 days there. How did it feel around the team? Because uh, in speaking to Stephen Marr, he arrived a little bit late, uh, TJ had the back thing, was, was it good to see everybody, or was there a little bit of doubt when you guys started training with guys rolling in at different times? Yeah, uh, no, this team's been together for so long that I think we all kind of, we all kind of like know uh, how it feels with everybody. And uh, me personally, I, I was so happy to be back in the gym with everybody. Uh, pro, pro's great, but uh, it's just not really the same. You kind of have brotherhood on the national team, and you're also kind of proud to represent the colors. So it's just a, a lot lighter, a lot. Uh, even though training's probably more intense, it's a lot more fun. You're a lot happier to be in the gym day in day out with the guys. So. Me personally, I was just ecstatic to be there. So with you being a BC guy, were you extra excited that the tournament was in Vancouver? Did that come with maybe a little bit of an added distraction? Um, yeah, definitely a bit of a distraction because, uh, yeah, I'm just, just outside, the, outside of the city and I had about 70 family members and friends, pretty much a whole section uh, just, just there to support me. So, uh, yeah, but it, it wasn't anything negative. It was just kind of a... A little bit of an added pressure, like, oh, we better get this done. All these people came out. <laughs> <laughs> so, with you being a part of the last cycle as well, did this one have a different mood around it, or how did you guys feel like going into the event? Yeah, no, it uh, it did for sure. Um, I mean, for guys who went already, it's not like nobody is is happy just having gone to one Olympics. Uh, we're all pretty pretty motivated to get back there for the guys who who weren't able to make the team last time and had to watch it on TV or whatever, they uh, were super, super uh, enthusiastic to get out, get back there. So, uh, yeah, it felt a little different for sure, but uh, playing against Cube is always a big uh, big question mark for us, what kind of game is going to be. So we were all, I'd say, equal parts nervous, equal parts confident. So the, the first night against Mexico, was that just kind of to set the tone and everything? Like, it looked like looking up the score sheet, like Glenn got a lot of guys in, uh, kind of a feeling out process to see where everybody was. Did it feel like when you guys were preparing for the event, like Cuba was the one you circled? Yeah, yeah, I would say so. Um, although Mexico and Puerto Rico, we play against them so much. Um, and, uh, you know, it's not that they're they're bad teams. Like, uh, we've also had games where we won, like, 15, 13, and a fifth against Mexico in, in recent years. So... They, all, all they need is a couple of good serving runs and they're right in there in the match. So we knew that we had to kind of set the tone and, uh, and uh, build some confidence for ourselves against the kind of weaker teams before, before playing Cuba. 
Now, we, we recently had TJ on the show, and he mentioned the Cuba game. Like, you guys go down 0-2, and he didn't really sense there was a lot of panic. Like, you guys were playing well, he thought. Obviously not well enough because you weren't winning, but it, you didn't feel like you needed to change too much. Like, was there anything that the coaching staff did or that the leaders stepped up and did? Like, what kind of caused the, the shift there after being down 0-2 and probably the biggest match of a lot of guys' careers? Yeah, I, like, I think a big part for uh... – a lot of guys probably how, how calm the veterans were or how calm Glenn was. Uh, I'd say five years ago, we would have been a little bit stressed, um, a, lot, a lot stressed. And uh, Glenn came, seemed to keep his resolve, and uh, that kind of helped us feel like um, we don't really need to panic. Like, Drew was playing great, but uh, our, our biggest strength over them, I think, was the depth of our bench and, and using guys. From the who didn't start the game and were able to come in and turn it around was huge for us. So, how did it feel after the Cuba match? Like, was that the one that you guys thought, uh, you know, Big Selly, you had a lot of family and friends there, or did you guys have to kind of keep it calm and reload and, and make sure you were ready for Puerto Rico the next day? Yeah, Puerto Rico, like I said, uh, it's, it's no team to, to laugh at, but we knew that they weren't going to be as much of a challenge as Cuba. So, just trying to, to use the few hours we had in the hotel to uh, to recharge the bodies and the minds. And for sure, you take an hour or two to go through social media and talk to family. And it, it's definitely a huge, exciting win. But uh, we knew that it would, it would be all for nothing if we uh, if we just like uh, stayed on that match and uh, didn't show up for Puerto Rico. So I think all the guys are successful enough that we knew uh, we had to absolutely crush them the next day just to send a message. Nice. So what's next for you? How long does the, the season go for in Belgium? Like, when will you have to report to Gatineau? And then, obviously, VNL is still a big part of the summer. Like, what's the, the lead-in going to feel like going into Tokyo? Yeah, we have a we have a cup final in a week now, which is a huge deal in Belgium. It's, like, 15,000 people. And then we have playoffs starting. We just finished our regular season, so playoffs are already actually starting soon. Um, a couple Champions League games, and then playoffs will go until about May. I think 13 is the last game, so it, it's a long season. And then hopefully get maybe a couple days off to go see the family or whatever. But uh, I think VNL starts at the end of May, pretty quick after our season finishes here. Brett, Brett, uh, one of the setters, he uh, he's with me on the team here, so we'll definitely show up a little bit late to training camp. But uh, VNL goes until like I think the finals are July. Third to fifth, and then uh, the Olympics start something like July. I think twenty fifth is our first game, so there's not much turnaround at all. It's a this summer's going to be a sprint. So yeah, that's uh, everyone on the national team knows that, and we're all trying to take care of our bodies and build strength uh, in, the, in the weight room and stuff because we won't have much time for that during the VNL. And how is your season going so far in Belgium? How are you enjoying it with this uh, the club this year? Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, the guys, the guys here are sweet. Uh, Belgium's a great country. Good food. Uh, everyone speaks really good English, and I'm I'm of Dutch origin, so it kind of feels like uh, everyone, every person I see on the street could be a distant or uncle. But uh, <laughs> yeah, the league's uh, the league's not the strongest in Europe, but we got uh, a couple teams that challenge us, and then uh, Champions League. So always nice to play against some of the better teams across Europe. So how did uh, the Belgium offer come about for you? Like, uh, with volleyball players being on contracts one year at a time, how did you decide that this was going to be the stop for you along your journey? Yeah, it's funny how, how teams often will... Uh, it's not really like the uh, NHL or NBA where guys are signing five-year deals. A lot of teams, if uh, they don't win at all, they seem to have a huge turnover. It's pretty short-sighted. But, uh, 
yeah, we uh, I, I've I've been on a couple different teams in France, and um, I was recently in Finland, and I had to end my season early because of a back injury last year. So uh, Brett texted me and said, "Hey man, do you got anything for next season?" Because uh, Roselar has a, a middle that's leaving, and uh, I guess he, he put my name in. So my agent contacted me as well and talked to the team, and I guess they looked at some of my video and just sent an offer over. I was uh, really happy to accept it. Nice, and you mentioned it is a little short-sighted compared to other sports that fans might fall a little bit more closely with contracts. Like, Do you like the idea of betting on yourself, or would you prefer that maybe somebody does offer you like a three- or four-year deal just so you know that you can kind of develop and learn with the same team? Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one. I mean, I, I like the idea of betting on myself, but I also, there's always the risk of injury, or uh, maybe you don't, uh, you have an off-season, and all of a sudden your, uh, I don't know, your quote-unquote stock goes down. So, I don't know. I, I think consistency is always nice. It's tough to establish a, a relationship uh, with, with the community and with the team when you know that you're leaving in like six months. So, um, I had I had two years with the same club as, as my own record, and I loved that. I loved uh, knowing where I was going again next year and kind of being comfortable getting my feet in the, get set some roots down for a little bit. So, I, I'd always probably choose to take a three- or four-year deal over going year to year. So fill us in with Belgium. I think you're the first pro we've had uh, playing over there. Do they have a foreigner limit about how many people could be on a roster? And then uh, you mentioned Brett's over there with you. Is there any other like North Americans uh, on your squad as well? Um, there's a, as far as I know, there's not a foreigner limit. Um, uh, we have a, a bunch of foreigners on the court. We actually we have probably more Belgians than uh, some of the other top teams. But uh, I think you have to have maybe six Belgian guys on your roster. Um, and as for the uh, North Americans, we had uh, Jason McCarthy, um, the Canadian opposite, but he, uh, he left before we got here. He had a, he had a shoulder problem. And then um, we have an American guy named Joe Norman. He was uh, recently playing in Korea earlier this season. And uh, yeah, he's a great guy. He's a, a physical second opposite for us. Nice. And, and what's the situation with uh, the coaching staff? Do they speak English really well that they can explain like practices and tactics to you guys? Or is somebody translating to you? Like, I'm always curious how that works when you combine people from all over the world with a, with a common goal. Yeah. Uh, this club, uh, everybody speaks English. I'd say, uh, yeah, if he's talking to a Dutch or a Belgian guy, he, uh, he's for sure going to speak uh, Flemish with them. But he, uh, he speaks in English for the most part. His English is really good. We... Um, I, I think all the teams I've been on, sometimes the coaches are even foreigners, so they don't, might not even speak the local language. But uh, uh, France, they like to speak French there. Uh, pretty proud of their language. And then uh, I think Italy's pretty similar. And then there are some countries where the linguistic skills aren't really uh, what they are in other countries. So like uh, a lot of Asian countries, you might have a, a, your own personal translator. You'd have to ask uh, Gavin about that one. But yeah. <laughs> Awesome, and if you wouldn't mind just giving us a little insight, because uh, the, the contracts aren't talked about too much, so you mentioned uh, you got cut short in Finland there, so is that the club dictating that? Is that you approaching them saying you, you can't compete? Like, did you leave on good terms, or was it as simple as you were injured and couldn't do your job, so they, they released you? No, the club was actually really good to me. I, uh, I showed up, like, right after World Championships last summer, and I think I played, I played, uh, like, I think I got in on Tuesday. I played on Wednesday, Friday, and Sunday. And after like the Sunday game, I could barely walk. And I never had a back injury before, so um, it kind of sucked to show up and like play for a week and, and go on the IR. I still tried to play all the way up until about Christmas, but I was like, 
I was unable to train or I would like play a game and be bedridden for two days after. So it was pretty brutal. Um, so the team did everything they could to, uh, to help me get back and um, with physio and different treatments and stuff. But uh, they, at a certain point, I just said like, look, I got the Olympic qualification coming up this summer. I'm not getting any better here. And I just feel kind of guilty taking, taking your money and just sitting in my apartment. So, uh, I, I told him, let's take like another month. And if it hasn't gotten any better, if I'm not close to playing, then, uh, how will we just call it? And they were like, yeah. So it was actually kind of my idea because my priority wasn't to get the paycheck. It was to, uh, to try to help the team qualify in, uh, in China. So, um, yeah, they were actually really good about it. Uh, most teams though, what they'll do is they have what's called a medical joker. So if you get like a acute injury, like a bad knee thing or an ankle roll, um, if it's happened like in a game or in training, the team has like insurance to cover, cover you. So the government will pay your salary until you get back. And, um, and so usually with the extra money that they're saving, they'll get a, whoever's on the market to replace you, uh, especially if it's close to the end of the season. So they didn't uh, actually have to, because Finland's not the strongest league and they had already two pretty good medals. Um, so me, I just kind of left and the team ended up winning the championship uh, anyway. And uh, so, yeah, I think we made the right call all in all, but usually the medical joker will step in and kind of save the day. Oh, nice, nice. So, with your experience leaving U Sports or CIS, how did you go about hiring your agent? Like, have you had the same agent your entire career? No, I've actually gone through three different ones. Um, yeah, I, I think I, I knew a guy who played uh, Stefan Waldi. He was a, a libero in CIS. Um, back in the day, I'm kind of dating myself, calling it the CIS. But, uh, <laughs> and he uh, hooked me up with this, uh, with this agency, and then uh, I had him for three years, and then I decided to uh, part ways and I went with another agent and then uh, again I just wasn't uh, didn't feel like it was the right direction for my career so I signed with uh, yeah George Matiasevich and his partner to uh, Serbian guys that live in France they're they're a pretty big agency they have uh, connections on almost every club in the world so um, yeah I've been with them for about three or four years and uh, yeah it's been pretty good so what's your process or what advice would you give to our listeners who know what pro volleyball is, but they have no idea how to get a contract? Like, how do you compare an offer from France or Greece or Belgium? Like, how do you get the intel to decide that uh, this is the spot for you? Because it sounds like a lot of athletes don't know what their club is like until you're already like a part of their property and you're on the ground there, right? Yeah, it's a tough one because uh, often you, you might not know yeah anything like you said, but um, in terms of, of the league, it's pretty straightforward to kind of see which leagues are strong and which ones aren't. There are some that will surprise you, like I think the Czech League or, or uh, you know, some some lower-level teams, even like France Pro B, or they're great leagues. Like they, they pay decent, and, but the level's actually pretty high. Um, hopefully, uh, you'd be able to, to find a guy in the previous years from Canada or the U.S. who's been there. You can just shoot him a message and ask, hey, they well, first they pay their bills because you don't want to be out there playing, playing for free. And, uh, <laughs> And how's the level? How's the coach? Uh, you kind of do your research because uh, you can you can be in a maybe a nice city or a decent league and just have a terrible time. The coach might just not know what he's doing or or something or, or vice versa, you know. And uh, yeah, I've, I've been in some situations where it seemed ideal and I didn't really like the coach or he didn't like me. Or I've also been in places that were seemed to be a mess, but uh, I actually improved a ton that year. So yeah, you kind of have to. Um, 
also just know how to self-improve in those situations, find out how to get the most out of every training. And uh, But yeah, I would say doing your research and trying to talk to guys who played there, play top coach, is, is paramount. Now, obviously, uh, Walsh gets the assist for, for getting you where you are this year, but if you had your pick, is there any kind of pillars you look for in your contracts? Like, are you a guy who wants to be a part of Champions League every year? Like, do you want to be in certain cities around Europe? Or is there anything that kind of you can be a little bit picky on, or does it really just come down to who's offering what at that time? Um, yeah, good question. I, I think uh, <laughs> when I was younger, I probably would have said, like, oh, I want to live in a cool city or somewhere close to something something cool to see so I don't get bored. But uh, I, I think the most important thing for me uh, year in, year out, is just to keep improving, stay at a decent level. So even though Belgium's not the, like I said, not the strongest league, it's not, it's not that bad. And Champions League, and also also having a, a really solid, uh, deep team, so that training every day is pretty challenging here. So, yeah, I, I'd say that the priorities are probably to keep the level high so I'm not getting worse during the year. Uh, for sure, trying trying to improve every day, and then just making sure that the team uh, team pays. Because you'll you'll hear stories of guys who five years later are still trying to get their money from so and so club, and uh, yeah, that just sucks to to try to be fighting for money when you've kind of held up your end of the bargain, you know. Yeah, we've heard horror stories of that. We haven't found a player who's actually been burned by that. But do you know? Um any red flags you would see before it happened or what are the causes of that is it as simple as the club uh runs out of money and maybe that's an issue or is it sometimes based on performance that they don't think you are worth what they agreed on like how how shaky are some of these contracts when they don't follow through on payments um well i actually had that in greece uh i played there i think four years ago and i just got the rest of my money last year i think i was still missing a couple bucks but uh, i was happy just to have the case kind of closed um, I was there during the uh, economics, like one of the, well, they were still in pretty deep in the economic recession, and then there was a lot of a lot of stuff going on in Greece that, uh, that year. So the team, uh, a couple of their sponsors just didn't pay them, so they they wanted to pay me. At one point, even the president, uh, he paid out of his like out of his own bank account one month's salary for all the players, just so we didn't go on strike or or leave or whatever. Um, I don't think it was like malicious on their part, but uh, and I heard that they were paying the guys the next year, and uh, and I was still missing something like ten thousand euros. So I just decided to uh, open a claim with the Greek league and the and the CEV, like the kind of the governing body of volleyball in, in Europe, and uh, they do a great job of, of kind of defending the players. You have to submit all your paperwork and, and proof that you didn't get paid, but. Uh, team was really sloppy on there and they had no receipts that they had paid me i got paid uh, cash in an envelope uh <laughs> club would drive by like 11 at night on the first of every month and just like honk the horn i would come down and get a bunch of i'd get my monthly salary or percentage of it in uh five ten to twenty so it was <laughs> it was pretty sketchy so pretty easy for me to prove that I, I was missing most of my contract and then uh yeah, eventually they had to they had to pay me to prove uh, that they could still play in Europe. And if they didn't, um, if, I, if after a couple of months I said, "Hey, I still haven't got my money," the CEV would have blocked them from having any foreigners on their squad, and then the Greek league would have blocked them from playing in the league. So um, it's gotten better in, in recent years for sure. In most, but uh, yeah, I think uh, I don't think that most teams would refuse to pay based on performance. If that were the case, they might just break your contract and kick you out. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think most most of the time it's just uh, an unreliable sponsor. I've seen it in Poland the past, uh, the past couple of years, like really good teams 
And then what were their main sponsor who's promised like like five hundred thousand euros just to goes out of business or something like that and they just straight up can't pay the bills. So unfortunately that's kind of the way it goes here sometimes. Well, it's nice that the, the performance thing doesn't contribute to contracts very much, but you being a foreigner, have you ever felt that uh, there is an expectation for performance? Like they almost treat you like a video game and they say, hey, we bought you with this, these stats and these physical attributes, so you better therefore give us this. Like, What is it like being a, a foreigner over there? Are you, are you feeling the pressure that you have to deliver every game? Yeah, for sure. I, I think you always kind of want to do your best. Um, one thing that I've noticed in previous years is that uh, Canadians, in our nature, I think we, we work pretty hard. I think it comes from the uh, gritty hockey player in, in all of us. <laughs> we uh, we all like kind of go hard in training, and we all want to work competitive in, in games and stuff. So teams, even uh, despite the level of the league or the player, I think that they're always happy to have Canadians on their, on their squad. And you see it a lot. Uh, a lot of guys used to not be able to get contracts out of uh, CIS or U Sports, and then they'd have to go to FTC just to get their name on the radar. And then it started with a couple of uh, younger guys who are even on the national team now. They kind of went straight to, to Europe, and they performed really well. So you see a lot of guys going straight to pro now. And, um, and I think that's a testament to how hard uh, we work as a, as a country. But... Uh, yeah, to be honest, I, I have felt that pressure before just to kind of, hey, this team, uh, they could have taken someone else and they took me, so I want to give them my best day in, day out. And when you don't, and, I don't know, you can't let that, I try not to let that get to me too much. It's, uh, you know, we, we all have bad days, but uh, you definitely do feel a bit of pressure. Yeah, so let's circle back to your CIS or U-Sport days, whatever you want to call it. So you being a BC guy, were you pretty committed that Trinity was the spot for you, or what was your recruiting process to decide on where you wanted to play your post-secondary? <laughs> it's a, kind of a funny story. I actually didn't want to go to Trinity at all. I was kind of the, uh, I don't know, self-proclaimed black sheep of the family, but uh, <laughs> I didn't want to. I was the fourth of five kids, and the other three before me had all gone to Trinity, so... I wanted to go somewhere else. I wanted to move out of Langley, um, not go to school five minutes from mom and dad. So I talked to the country I furthest from uh, from Langley. I talked to Dalhousie um, and Dan Oda. I had a great program. I wanted to go play for him. And then, uh, to be honest, I just wasn't a very good player out of uh, high school. I didn't really get on too many coaches' radar. So Pat Henley recruited me pretty hard, but that was about it. So Ben Joe. Um, he, I had a visit with him, and he uh, he kind of convinced me that. It was the it was the right step for me as a as a player and as a person, and uh, I, I actually agreed. I verbally committed with no scholarship. It was just when one guy, Dave Van Dandy, uh, quit the team that I kind of got his scholarship, which paid for a fraction of the uh, <laughs> schooling at Trinity. And then, yeah, I didn't work too hard my first two years. Um, I was just kind of happy being on the team. And then in my third year, I kind of dialed it in a bit and I started to see some court time and, uh, and yeah the rest is history but I, I really didn't want to go to Trinity from the get go actually Now what flipped for you in third year that you started to kind of work your way through it was it just kind of you saw guys ahead of you having success at not only at the university level but at the pro and national team level or did you just decide that you, you really enjoyed volleyball and wanted to see how far you could take it uh, Yeah no like uh, national team pro was never on my radar um, I just was like, it had been two years kind of sitting on the bench and uh, being in pain a lot. I was I was a little like not overweight. <laughs> My teammates called me fat dad, but I was like 235 or something. And uh, I was just like not not in good shape and not uh, not training well, never getting on the court. And then uh, 
that just kind of started to drive me nuts over time. And then Lucas Van Berpel was also a year younger than me, but he was uh, he was improving really fast, and we were battling it out day in, day out in training. And Ben was always uh, butting our heads against each other, so I just kind of decided to. Uh, I don't know. I either got to go, go uh, you know, balls to the wall here or quit. And uh, so I took a summer and I was working like a blue collar job in uh, in North Vancouver. And I lost about like 25 pounds or something. And my spike touch increased by six inches. And uh, and then we had a preseason trip to Russia. And we ended up actually, me and Lucas uh, had both improved so much in the summer that we ended up both starting. And then our two starting middles from the previous season, Josh Dornenball, moved to opposite and Rudy Verhoof moved to left side. So it was kind of cool how it happened. Nice. And we've had a few training guys on, like we've had Schreimer and we've had Lepke and Derek Epp, and we hope to get a few more just because it's, it's neat to hear all of them talk about what the big secret is from Trinity. And we actually got a, a different answer from each of them, which shows that Benjo just doesn't really just say this is how it's going to be, that everybody can have their own experience. So looking back at your years, what stands out is what makes uh, Trinity so special as far as the success and then the players that they're pumping out of there? Yeah, uh, it's a tough one to answer because there's probably a lot of factors. I'd say, uh, well, obviously, there's there's no question that Ben Joe's a huge part of that um, in, in his coaching tactics and his knowledge of the game, but uh, also in the way that he recruits, like the kind of characters that he creates. Um, he he kind of looks for an X factor in, in guys that uh, he almost doesn't even need to coach because the guys are so competitive and, and, uh, and push each other day in and day out. So... Um, that's why you got so such deep, uh, deep rosters every year, and such quality guys that come out of there because uh, he just kind of he creates a culture where uh, training is almost more, more uh, higher quality ball than a lot of the games because the bench guys are just pushing you every day. Now, how did you find that you were getting along with Van Burkle off the court when you guys were butting heads so much? Like, was there any animosity? Like, you just really didn't like him when you wanted to beat him at every single drill, every single, like, warm-up, warm-up activity? Or was there still still a bit of a brotherhood there? Uh, yeah, it's an ongoing uh, conversation. <laughs> but, uh, no, Lucas and I are buddies. We're, uh, I'd say that we've always had a friendly, uh, friendly rivalry, and we always uh, – it's funny, it's been uh, – what is it now? Probably ten years. I'm either in the national team or or uh, or on Trinity competing for a, a, a starting spot or a, maybe a roster spot for a tournament with the national team or something. And uh, uh, at, at times, it's probably tested us, but uh, we're we're good buddies. We've been uh, roommates with the national team for a couple of years in Gatineau when we're training and stuff. So we get along pretty well. And uh, yeah, I, I, I've spent Lucas a lot. And I think we learn from each other and push each other. And that's just kind of. Yeah, going back to the training thing, it just kind of helps uh, helps the team be better. Even though you might leave one training and maybe he got the better of me, and I'm pissed off and I hate him, it uh, it just kind of helps everybody get better over over the course of time. So it's neat to hear about your journey about not being like a, a top recruit coming out of club in high school, and really took you till third year to really click and work at it. So. As a middle, is there any advice you would give to like younger players? Like, do you really like to look at the setter, uh, or are there any tactics that you kind of view as what's given you an advantage to be such a successful, like not only offensive uh, middle but a defensive one as well? It's a tough question to answer because every middle's got a different set of skills. But uh, one thing that I think every middle should be working on from a young age is their footwork, just trying to uh, trying to get as fast as they can so that uh, they can they, they don't need to commit. Us. Um, they can kind of just read and close the block. That kind of makes it so much easier um, for them to kind of be everywhere. Because as a middle, it's almost impossible to be everywhere. You either have to 
have to kind of commit on uh, at a certain certain level. You have to commit on the other middle um, and try to stop him, which isn't even guaranteed. Or you have to try to read and, and be on the pipe on the left side and the right side at the same time, which is also really tough. So if you are able to get your foot speed to a place where you can read the setter well enough and then try to at least be be kind of everywhere at once, it's it's, it's tough to do and it takes actually honestly years. But then. Uh, after that, I mean, learning the setter's tendencies, and hopefully the coaches are able to help with that. I've been very fortunate to have great coaches over over the course of my career. But uh, yeah, and then working on your hands, knowing that sometimes you might not close a block, and you might be about to get uh, take a block out. But uh, being able to slow that ball down instead of being a liability, you know, or make uh, clean seats for your defenders, in my opinion, just as important as getting a getting a kill block. So you don't have to mention names because obviously you might you might play them again. But just for me as an example, like when you're playing a top middle like uh, Simone from Cuba or somebody like that, what goes into your prep? Um, like do coaches let you know like an idea of what rotation and who's going to line up with who, or or kind of just comes down to the game, right? So when you're preparing for the top level guys, what do you like to know as a middle just so you can be comfortable with what they're going to bring? Um, yeah, everybody has tendencies, even the best players in the world. Um, and uh, you might you might see a guy who he only likes to hit to five, um, but then you start playing him and he hits the one, he hits the one, and he's hit the one all game. But eventually, in a stressful set at twenty three twenty three, he's going to go back to his, his tendencies. And you kind of got to you got to evolve as the match goes on. But you also kind of have to uh, yeah have to have to just kind of be able to read the game. Like when the guy comes from behind the setter in rotation three or six, maybe he likes to hit it back to five or those little tendencies. Um, and uh, and then yeah, like uh, being being adaptable. So seeing that oh that guy just he's not hitting that today. I, I'm going to need to change the way I'm blocking him. But uh, yeah, a lot of a lot of the, the work as a as a middle blocker is done before the game even starts. Nice, nice. And just to circle back with one more Trinity question, I'm just trying to think of who was on your roster. So you mentioned you had Rudy. Uh, were you with the Mark Houtson days and the Steve Marshalls? Yeah. yeah so with that team, is that when pro volleyball really clicked? That when basically the whole starting lineup is going to go on and play volleyball for their first career. Is that when you kind of started looking into an agent or were you kind of approached and identified? Like, how did that come together for you? Yeah, to be honest, nobody was looking at me out of, uh, out of Trinity. <laughs> I, was, uh, I, uh, I kind of had to look for my own agent and uh, I got lucky to go to France uh, second division my first year. But uh, yeah, I was in my fifth year, the year that, uh, so I was my fourth year when Ben Ball and, Mark Howison and Rudy and all those guys were uh, were ending their career and uh, going to FTC and then going to pro. So I uh, I kind of had to wait another year and then uh, I, I asked I asked uh, that agent if he could get me anything and I ended up going to Europe. Actually, I skipped FTC and uh, and I was uh, going overseas at kind of the same time as uh, as Rudy and those guys. So awesome! Now, and if he would have went to FTC. At that time, that was still kind of a, a, a jumping ground for a lot of guys. Like, it was very rare, as you mentioned, that, like, the Riley Barnes era of, of getting a contract right at a CIS hadn't happened yet, right? So, uh, with going to FTC, what would you have expected there? Did you know anybody who went there and then got the contract they wanted? Yeah, for sure. Uh, the year that I was kind of supposed to go, Steve Marshall went, and then he went uh, He went to Poland the next year, which is a great, uh, great league, obviously. So, uh, it's definitely helped a lot of guys. Um, to be honest, I probably should have gone my technical skills uh, weren't quite where they needed to be i just was at a place in life where i wasn't sure if i wanted to play for a long time i kind of just wanted to go to europe and 
actually when I got out there, I, I loved it. It was kind of like uh, we trained the same amount that I did at Trinity, but I didn't have a, I didn't have a six hours of class before, and I didn't have you know all the distractions of family and friends and a girlfriend. So I had a lot more time to to apply myself to the the game on the court. And I once I did that, I actually ended up liking it a lot more. So FTC, I think for a ton of guys, it's really really valuable. Um, if you are able to get a good contract and play against uh, great players every weekend, then obviously that's that's a great thing too. But uh, it's just not not for everyone. A lot of guys now. What Dan Lewis is doing at the uh, NEP is uh, it's amazing. He's a uh, he, he really thinks uh, outside the box. And I think the guys who are with him this year are improving like crazy. So uh, yeah, I'd recommend that as well to young guys. Now that you've had a few years with uh, Glenn Hogue as your coach, is there anything that stands out in your mind? And the reason why I ask is we just had Alex Russell on the show who he, he's made the jump to beach, but he mentioned a good Glenn story when he was with the junior national team that Glenn pulled him aside once and showed him a picture of yeah, there's either a bear or a mountain lion or something being super aggressive. And Glenn would just gave him a quick, like, this is you, this is what you look like when you block, be more aggressive and just kind of walked off and punched Alex in the brain with that one. So I was wondering if Glenn's ever pulled you aside and just given you one or two pointers and then just kind of let you do your thing. Yeah, Glenn, uh, he was a middle blocker himself, so he's, uh, he's second to none when it comes to uh, the mental side of being a middle blocker. You just gotta, yeah, he's, he's always talking about fangs. You just have to, like, your hands can't just be hands. They kind of have to be, like, fangs. You gotta be aggressive and take the sun away from the guy when you're, like, you know, just block everything. Just literally take the ball away from him. Um, he's, uh, he's awesome. Like, I, I think... Uh, a lot of guys uh, in the previous couple of years would have uh, said that they were really kind of afraid of him almost, and uh, he was he was kind of playing more on the on the don't screw up kind of side of things, which is uh, also tough when you're already playing against the other team and, and the refs, and you're also uh, kind of playing against your own coach. It just isn't uh, as enjoyable. So when uh, Stefan Antiga ended ended his uh, contract with us. And Glenn came back. I think a lot of us were a little bit apprehensive. Like, what are, what are we dealing with here? And Glenn came back like a totally different guy. He, uh, he knew that the team was uh, a bit more experienced and older and more mature. And he didn't need to light a fire under our under our butts. Uh, we, we would do that on our own. So he could focus more on the uh, technical, tactical side of things. And his, uh, he's, he's a much more patient coach now. And, uh, and I think it's a lot easier to learn from him, which is... Uh, I think a big uh, a big reason why we were able to get it done in uh, Vancouver a couple weeks ago. Nice. Well said. Thanks for sharing that one. Um, now, with Antigua only being here uh, a little while, it feels like pretty short, but it was a couple seasons. Um, is there anything that stuck out in your mind what he contributed? Because I think he deserves some credit in a few areas. I wonder if he has had any impact on your career. Definitely, yeah. Because I'm uh, a lot of us, we've only ever kind of played for – for Glenn or people who have been coached by Glenn or, or, you know, that kind of thing. So we kind of only learned the volleyball from one kind of side of things. Um, Stefan, he teaches it from a different, uh, it's kind of hard to, to put it on paper, but he, he just really thinks outside the box and he helped us all to think like, Hey, there's more than one way to do things like, okay, we need to block line against this guy, but you can't do it all the time or he's going to see that any good player, good setter is going to uh, make adjustments against you. So you kind of have to, play the game and just uh, volleyball is a random sport so you need to train it in a random way sometimes so some of the drills you were doing at first they just seemed insane to us like uh, yeah every every warm up game uh, was something weird like it would be like volley tennis but you had two contacts 
and one of them had to be with one arm or something kind of stupid like that. And uh, we'd be like, okay, like when am I ever going to use this? And then you found yourself in a situation in a game where you actually had to do some really weird movement, but we kind of trained that over the course of the year. And it was fun too. Like we would always uh, end trainings with uh, some type of punishment. Like uh, an example is you would have to stand on the three-meter line, hit the ball into the net, pancake it, set yourself, and then hit it over. Once you did that, like uh, the, the team we lost the last year would all have to do that. Once you did that, you were done. You were free to go. And like some of the less coordinated fellows like myself uh, would take a while to get it done. <laughs> and everyone would be kind of laughing and cheering us on on the sidelines. And uh, and then all of a sudden you catch a, a big seven-foot guy making, uh, making a pancake in the fifth set of a game. And you're like, wow, you wouldn't have done that four months ago. No chance. So, um yeah, and, and then he just kept a pretty light approach to everything. He gave guys a long leash, which uh, when you feel like your coach is really confident in you and gives you a lot of chances, then that helps you play a lot more free and just uh, be able to actually think about the game and not think about, oh, man, am I going to get subbed out if I miss this serve or whatever? So Stefan deserves a lot of credit. Your idea, I think he trained a lot of us uh, to, to kind of yeah see the game in a different light. Nice, nice. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. So uh, one tradition we have on the show is we, we like to ask for odd stories that even though you've established yourself as, you know, a top athlete in the world, some odd stuff still happens to volleyball players. So I was wondering if you had uh, any unique stories you could kind of leave us with. Um, yeah, one that comes to mind was uh, a couple of years ago we had the, the Olympic qualifiers in, uh, in Edmonton. And it was kind of a similar one to Vancouver, except for we were quite a bit stronger than Cuba. We lost it. And so we had one last chance qualifier, and we were all pretty. Uh, we had to go back for pro teams in January, and we had to think about like, well, we're gonna have to try to really duke it out of this qualifier. And we actually ended up getting it done. It was kind of a Cinderella story. We uh, we went to five with all these great teams, and ended up winning, I think, fifteen thirteen against China. And we still needed another team to help us qualify. So it was really it came down to the last, like the last tear, and then. Uh, after that, we still didn't know who was going to be on the roster because they were going to cut it from 14 to 12. So um, we had these World League, uh, World League finals in Portugal. And uh, after our last game, we, uh, we had meetings in numerical order. So you're kind of like, we're all sitting there in the lobby and one guy would go into the coach's room in the hotel and uh, he'd be like, okay, number one is TJ. Okay, he made it. All right, we're pretty sure Graham's going to make it. So, uh, man, like, uh, well, what are the other... We're only going to take three middles, I'm guessing. So uh, who's the who's the next one? So I'm, you know, like I'm going into my meeting. I've never been so nervous in my life. And uh, I got told that I made the team, but uh, he told me it was uh, one of the toughest. Glenn told me that it was one of the toughest decisions he's ever made. And uh, and I, I, I really uh, took it to heart because he had to cut some uh, really experienced guys who spent uh, more than a decade there. And uh, so I, I was really honored to go. So we had a couple days off, and then we flew to Brazil. We had a couple friendly games with this pro team, Taubaté. And uh, in the first game, I would like serve the ball, and I was going back on defense. And I, I made a movement, and I heard this like sound, like a t-shirt ripping. And it was a—I uh, I didn't know what it was. I'd never had like a muscle tear before, but I kind of felt something in my hamstring. So sure enough, I, I played the rest of the game like an idiot, and. Uh, I ended up like the uh, physio came to me at the end of the game and he's like, hey, you all right? Like, I don't know, to be honest, I got this like pretty sharp pain in my hamstring. So we got an MRI in this sketchy uh, sketchy hospital in Brazil the next morning and they told me, uh, hey, you got a 
pretty severe tear in your hamstring. And I'm like, oh, wait, man. Like, after all that, I, I get injured right before the games. This is like 10 days before the opening ceremonies. So uh, the team ends up, like, uh, coming to my coming to me a couple hours later. The coordinator goes, hey, we booked you a flight. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. I'm going home. He's like, no, 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 you're going to do the, uh, the Olympic Village. And I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, yeah, we, uh, we have a couple more days to make the final cut, so we're going to send you to, to Rio, and we're going to we're gonna put you up with the top doctors in, in Canada and see what they can do, if they can work some magic on your hamstring. And, and I got a PRP injection, and uh, I ended up, like, I could almost barely walk when I got there. And about a week later, I was uh, back on the court um, with this torn hamstring. And, uh, yeah, it was quite a miracle for me, like, the way that it all went down with the uh, with, uh, you know, losing to Cuba and then the ad- adversity that we uh, faced in that uh, main qualifier. We were, like, really first time in 24 years to make it there and then to barely make the roster. And then right before that, to injure myself, it was, uh, for me personally, it was just a miracle that I was actually able to go to the games. But, uh, yeah. Now, how did that affect you mentally? Like, once they got you a flight to Rio, did that help calm everything down? Or were you... I don't want to over-dramatize it for you, but it's your story, but in a pretty dark place where you realize that, like, man, I finally made it, and then this happens? Or how did you react originally? Yeah, I, I'd say I was in a dark place for sure. There were times where I was, uh, <laughs> to be honest, I was like, man, things aren't looking so hot. Should I just be enjoying the Olympic Village here, trying to make as many memories as I can because I'm going home in a couple of days or, <laughs> or what? But uh, I, I try to keep, uh, keep pretty optimistic and just... Uh, you know, people have come back from a lot worse. So uh, I, I trusted the staff, and, uh, and and they trusted me. And then luckily, but yeah, the, the craziest thing, a little side note, was when I was like, so I, I was alone in the village. There was like, there's 20,000 people in there, I think, by the end of the games. But there was like maybe a 1,000. And, and the Canada building is like 19 stories, and it was pretty much empty. It's just me there and like 50 physios. And uh, at one point, I'm on Instagram. And the guys are still uh, at that, that, that training camp. And I see that one of them posted a picture on Instagram, and he's got the blue check mark. And I was like, oh, my goodness, he, he got verified. And then I look at another guy, and he got verified. And I look at everyone on the team, and they all got it except for me. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, are you kidding me? This is how I find out that I didn't make the roster. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so I ended up just, like, waiting a day or two. And at that point, I was like, no chance. Like, I'm not going. Um but then I ended up, uh, I ended up being told that I, I had made the final cut, and uh, I asked, like, I think I asked Glenn, like, what about the Instagram thing? He's like, what the hell are you talking about? Exactly. <laughs> it just happened that my email didn't match my like uh, my uh, Olympic account email or something like that. So <laughs> it was kind of a funny thing, but uh, yeah, the blue check mark stressed me out. Oh, that would have been a great Glenn moment to capture if uh, the straight-up question. Oh, I made the team. Cool, cool. Well, my serious question, Glenn, is uh, what about the Instagram account? <laughs> yeah, when do I get verified? <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I'm not sure how many people have heard that story, but that's a great one. So thanks for sharing that with us. So um, thanks for coordinating this. You're all the way in Belgium. I know the time zone difference was a little bit of a challenge, but uh, we've wanted to get you on the show for a while. So thanks for helping us connect that. And great stuff glad we could finally connect and good luck the rest of the season and obviously looking forward to a big summer yeah awesome thanks for uh, thanks for having me and uh, thanks for everything you're doing for volleyball in canada it's a great podcast oh awesome thanks you're avid listener awesome and there are a few of those out there i guess so <laughs> awesome man. well take care eh? awesome thanks again